SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 56 with guest Thomas LaRocque. Welcome. Our guest today is Thomas LaRocque. Thomas is a seasoned IT professional with over a decade of technical and management experience. Currently serving as a technical evangelist for Confio Software, Thomas has progressed through several roles in his career, including programmer, analyst, and DBA. Thomas holds an MS degree in mathematics from Washington State University, currently serves on the board of directors for PASS, and is a SQL Server MCM and MVP. Thomas an avid blogger and author of DBA Survivor, Become a Rockstar DBA. So welcome, Thomas. Ah, thank you. Thanks for having me, Greg. Well, good. And, uh, of course, where I met Thomas is uh, involved with PASS. And so you're on the PASS board still at this point? Uh, I am. And, yes, that's uh, pretty much we met each other through PASS oh, hmm. years ago. And we actually served on board together briefly. Indeed. And so what I get everyone to do when they first come on the show is just describe uh, briefly just how did you ever come to be involved with SQL Server? Uh, well, let's, uh, let's put it this way. It was, it was purely by accident. Uh, I was a developer, and I was doing, uh, if you're familiar with it, it was Power Builder was what yes. I was using. Yeah, so that tells you how old I am. And uh, I was using Power Builder on top of uh, Informix, and then Power Builder on top of Oracle, then Power Builder on top of Sybase. Yeah. And Sybase was the, uh, how they say, the uh, the keystone kind of thing, or, or the mm-hmm. gateway, the gateway platform, because uh, that company had Sybase, and then SQL Server was coming up at the time, and SQL Server yep. 2000. So I, along my way of being a developer, I started to kind of want to gravitate more towards the database administration, and mm-hmm. uh, so I started doing some backups and restores on Sybase and helping troubleshoot basic issues. And uh, one day they just came to me and said, hey, all the other DBAs just quit. You've done a restore yeah. before. How would you like to be the new DBA? I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. And so yeah. we had like three instances of SQL Server at the time. And when I left that company, we were managing 180. Yeah, no, that's great. And so, yeah, a lot of people, yeah, I think have never really totally planned to go into it and sort of ended up there. That's that's not uncommon at all. That's good. And listen, you're obviously an avid blogger and tweeter, I might add, uh, as well. But um, one of the topics that you raise a bit is the, the growth of this accidental architect. And uh, just love to hear your thoughts on that. So the accidental architect is... There's this whole concept of being an accidental DBA. I mean, I consider myself this accidental DBA. I didn't go to school to be a DBA, right? Nobody really does. Mm. Uh, It's one of those things you kind of fall into, or somebody gets identified, like a company says, you know, we've grown to a point where we probably need to have somebody specializing in this area of administration, and you're a developer that we think, you know, would fit this role. Or you're an mm-hmm. or you're a sysadmin that we think might fit this role. So, a lot of people kind of fall into it. You either gravitate towards it, or you just end up having it dump in your feet. Uh, so there's this accidental DBA, and what I've seen over my career, and I've seen this happen for others, is what happens, especially true for SQL Server, and you know this, right? Everything mm-hmm. starts with SS, SQL Server something, SQL Server yep. Analysis Services, SQL Server Reporting Services. SQL Server integration services. So what I would find is somebody would come to me and say, we're having trouble with these reports. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I could take a look. Well, uh, we need you to just fix it. We need you to do this and that. And I go, yeah, but 
it's it's report services. I don't really know anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yep. it says SQL Server. Aren't you the DBA? And you kind of take a step back and go, I am the DBA, but that doesn't mean that I know everything that starts with SQL Server. But yeah. the perception in is fact, you do. In fact, I'd, I'd suggest that's impossible. I, I, I often say to people, I think there was a time in the 70s when you could know most things about computing, and I think there was a time in the 90s you could know most things about SQL Server. Yeah, but not uh, anymore. I, I, not not even now. Yeah, I think the it's long gone past that. And every the the product is so broad, and there are so many areas where you could have significant depth. But yeah, I, I simply don't think that's possible anymore. Now, like me, you you have your SQL MCM. Matter of fact, you're the one of the first people I ever met that had the uh, certified mm-hmm. masters in SQL Server. And I joke with people. I say that means I know a lot about maybe twenty percent of the platform. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I just don't know. So what happens is, it, 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 but it's all data. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. just, you get this question and somebody says, hey, uh, I think I need a big data solution. Uh, aren't you the database yeah. guy? Shouldn't you know something about this? Mm-hmm. And these are the people I call the accidental architects because now it's more than just backups and restores or learning about analysis services or something like that. Now it's making decisions about hey, maybe Azure is the right choice here. I, I, I yeah. don't know, but I, I, right? I got to go and learn. And you're learning things at a much higher level. It's an architectural level. I know people who start out as developers and they're ending up as CTOs for startup software companies because they've yeah. fallen accidentally into that role. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think the if I look forward, you know, I look uh, with my crystal ball and think about what, what does the world look like in the future, uh, I have no doubt that the the typical technologist that'll be successful will have a breadth of knowledge, but depth in maybe one or two areas. Uh, I I would say that's I completely agree. It, there's just no question about it. You're going to find people that are really going to need to have familiarity with a lot a lot of different things, and not just one uh, company stack either. Like I mentioned Azure, but I need to be aware of what Amazon offers, right? Mm. I need to know if somebody comes to me and says, please help me make the right decision, I need to be able to make and help them make the best informed decision possible. So you really are going to have to be able to to um, to know a, a little bit about a lot. You know, we used to say um, what made a senior database administrator, it wasn't necessarily knowing everything, but it was being able to open up the manual and get up to speed very, very quickly. And that's what I think yeah. the accidental architects have to do as well. They have to know a little bit, but they have to be able to read the documentation and get the speed, know the concepts, and figure out what's the right choice. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's one of the challenges in the industry is the uh, that as a whole. I, I often say to new students when they're thinking about working in IT, I, I think it's the only discipline I've ever come across where I would suggest that 80 to 90% of what you know today is com- almost useless in four years' time. And the the other 10 or 20% is what keeps you out of trouble, uh, the, <laughs> the, the things that you get to keep in there. But but unless you're prepared to be doing some sort of ongoing learning, uh, just, just absolutely constantly, uh, it's probably the wrong industry. Right. I, I, I agree, yeah. And so... How I suppose then that leads the question, like, how do you break your day up? Do you have a, a percentage of your day you try and, and learn new things? Me personally, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think I'm kind of lucky in my job in that I get to learn new things as part of my job, right? So I don't have to necessarily mm-hmm. set aside an hour a day to do it. Sometimes it gets forced upon me. Uh, so yesterday I had a, a customer who needed help with an Ecologic SAN, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm somewhat familiar, but I needed to get more in-depth information and up to speed in order to help. So, you know, little things like that will happen to me throughout my day, and somebody will come and ask questions about Amazon RDS versus uh, Windows Azure SQL Database and, and the differences. So it's kind of lucky for me, right? Uh, not everybody yep. has that opportunity. So, But there are times when I say, all right, I will block out the next hour 
because I'm going to do something here with Power Pivot, and I'm going to want to mm. see how this is, you know, how can I visualize the information, this raw performance data? Can I put it, make it pretty, and help somebody get some insight here? And if I can do that, right? So I'll spend the time. So it's a mix. Mm. Sometimes so I get lucky. In that case, that's- that's largely on demand. Um, do you try and do any other sort of proactive things about like, or, or maybe you get enough from your job, um, but a lot of people will find they, they need to just constantly have a trickle of new things going on in the background as well. Now, in the case of uh, MCMs or MVPs and so on, part of that is going to be the fact that mailing lists and things that you're on just keep raising topics all the time that you think, you know, I, I know I do. I, I look and think, wow, I hadn't even thought about that. And they, these sort of things come up almost on a daily basis. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. The the mailing lists that were part of uh, definitely help, uh, those distribution lists for the MVPs and the MCMs. Yeah, it's stuff. Mm. Uh, what was one the other day about billing? Just a, a standard, yeah. a simple question about billing for in Azure. And you look and go, wow, I, I never really thought about the struggle that I see here. So now I need to go learn more. Mm. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the technical communities being global now too is that you just get quickly get uh, opinions from the, the needs from all over the world rather than just in a, in a specific area as well. Oh, that is definitely a high point, right? Because you get people just thinking of things uh, for their particular locale and which is much different than yours. You just have a much different perspective. Even something as simple as um, Gail down in uh, South Africa, and she talks about yep. the bandwidth issue. So for her, certain things are just, there's just no question that she can't do certain things because she can't download because she doesn't have the bandwidth. The tech, you know, it's, and you never think about those things uh, and the struggles that they have because you get used to where you are. Yeah, in fact, yeah, it's Gail Shaw in yeah in uh, South Africa, and and yeah, it's interesting whenever we have that because people will just post something up and say yes, just download this, and then Gail will be the one saying yes, yes, please, can someone um, download it somewhere else and send it to me or something? Exactly. Yeah, and it, it it is a real struggle when when they have that sort of thing. Um, do you tend to go back and watch um, like uh, with Pass or uh, the content that comes from the previous summits now? My take on the summits is whenever I tend to go to these things, I, I don't get to spend all that much time attending all the sessions, actually. Uh, uh, there's usually so much more networking and people and other things going on. And even if I did want to, there's so many sessions that I would like to watch. I, I can just never get to see them during the week uh, that, that I'm there anyway. Um, do you spend much time going back and looking at them later? Uh, the sessions because I know that is one of the things that I find a useful resource is uh, the past sessions, the tech ed sessions, uh, a whole lot of content on Channel Nine Things uh, dot, uh, Microsoft or MSDN dot com, um, where there I find these actually really really good resources for getting up to speed on topics. Yeah, absolutely. What I try to do is uh, I try to make a list of all the things I, I'd want to see. Like uh, if I'm going to summit. I'll know what might be the top 10 or 15 sessions I definitely want to attend, right? Mm. And I most likely I'm not going to attend a session. I already know that. I mean, busy with working for the board and just busy in general, like you said, networking. Yeah. And when you know that you can get them off the DVD as an attendee later, uh, mm. it, it's just, you know, if you have a chance between having a conversation with a group or sitting in a session, you know, you, you make that choice there. But, Going afterwards, what I do with that list is I sort of say, all right, well, here are the 10 or 15 I wanted to see. So then I try to set aside the time to watch those again. I may mm. not get through the whole DVD, but I, I highlight that. Channel 9 is another one out of TechEd. There's a lot of sessions yeah. at TechEd. I mean, a lot of sessions at TechEd. And I'm not going to get to see them all. Sometimes I'll find them through a Google search. And I'll, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, yeah, there's a video on Channel 9. Let me watch so-and-so from mm. TechEd. I remember I wanted to go to this and I missed it. So he... I find pe- people don't uh, don't seem to be all that wa- aware of Channel Nine. And no. uh, another thing to be aware of with them too is they have an RSS feed. And so if people do blog reading or things, I mean, just uh, get the Channel Nine RSS feed and plant that in there as well, uh, because that gives just a constant stream of things as they're getting posted up. The the volume of content up there is just amazing. Oh, it absolutely is. I I don't uh, I didn't I wasn't aware they had an RSS feed. You mm. need to include that with this. Yeah, and I'll put that in the show notes, yeah. 
yeah, it's a, I, fi- I find that a very, very, very good uh, one to use. And the other thing is that uh, having posted videos and things uh, on behalf of Microsoft on Channel 9, the number of people that view them is, is astonishing. Uh, it's quite common for me to have uh, videos I'll post up there and, and you just see tens of thousands, you know, 30,000, 50,000 people viewing them. You know, it's quite high. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know about the Channel 9 videos until last year when I mm. got from TechEd and I just saw people talking about it and using it. I, I was just unaware of it. But since I yeah. have, now that I know about it, you're right. It's a lot of views, a lot of great content, and I, for some reason it just doesn't seem to get as publicized. Mm. And look, so I think in this whole topic of like how to keep up to date, the, the other one that comes across, I mean, if you're doing more architectural work, rather than just uh, DBA work. So if you want to sort of grow into doing architectural work, the other thing is that you need to be aware of other technologies and the interaction of the technologies that you're into with those other technologies. And so uh, this is, again, I mean, while you might get questions, as you said, about sort of Azure things or whatever, but you may just as easily be getting questions uh, about MVC or... Uh, Node.js or current things around HTML5 and interaction and Ajax and so on. Uh, uh, these are the sort of territories that you're going to head, uh, be, be able to sort of field some level of familiarity with if uh, I think as people move more and more into an architecture role. And there's a significant challenge in keeping across even base level uh, knowledge and a lot in all of those sort of areas as they, as they expand. Oh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how anybody could ever expect to keep up with with the volume of information that's coming their way. I, I just don't. Mm. Uh, like you mentioned, that you're going to have to have a lot of breath, uh, breath but you're only going to dive so deep into just a couple of those buckets, right? Yeah. I think one of the challenges, though, is that uh, you'll increasingly be dealing with, say, development teams and I think a critical thing for an architect is going to be that you need to understand what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I agree. Now, you mentioned also that you'd uh, gone through the MCM program, and so congrats on uh, passing the master's cert. The, how did you find the process of studying for that? Or did you study, or was it more experience? So I have blogged about it, as you mentioned. I, mm. I do tend to blog a bit. Um, it was a combination of a lot of things, and it took me a long time to get through it all. So back in the day, of course, you could have gone on campus for three weeks. That was the rotation mm. that you're familiar with. Um, yeah. I tried to get in, but it was very difficult for me to find the time and to get some support uh, mm. in all the different areas I need. I mean, that's that's a real boot camp style where you dedicate yeah. your life. Um that wasn't going to be an option for me. So I had to take a little bit of a slower route. And around that time, they changed the program to be uh, more distributed, right? You could go to a testing mm-hmm. center to, to achieve the goal. And that was yeah. great for me. But in order to study, it required a few different things. One, I needed Microsoft to kind of point me in the right direction for the materials. Uh, yeah. Joe Sack, I thought, did a great job of, you know, making that material available. Yes. Uh, the SQL skills, the uh, videos that they had done, uh, the videos yep. by Paul and the videos by Kim especially, they were yep. uh, very, very helpful. And um, and so Joe's working with them, but we should point out, yeah, Joe was actually uh, heading up that program for a period of time. That's right. Well, Joe, so, Joe was yeah. the uh, MCM program director at Microsoft at the time, but mm-hmm. he now works with Paul and Kim at, at SQL, SQL skills. skills. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I had the material, but then it was also a matter of having the experience. And uh, that took a little bit of time as well because, you know, certain things that are, good, that are in the material aren't necessarily something that you touch every day. So yeah. then you have to go through the process of building out, you know, these instances on VMs and, and just tweaking things and figuring out, you know, basically uh, – you want to do it until it breaks, understand why it, mm-hmm. why it broke and what you can do to fix it, and then to be at the master level is to put things in place so they never have a chance to break to begin with, right? Yeah. And, and so 
I suppose one of the questions that comes to mind all the time is like, why why did you put yourself through it in the first place? So there's that's a great question. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's value because I work for a software vendor. There's value in my company having an MCM on staff, right? Yep. Uh, there's also value for me personally. Um, it's one of those things you, you push yourself. I mean, if I already have all the certifications except that one, well, what's stopping me? It's just the effort to get yeah. there and to do it. So you push yourself to be a little more successful. I'll, I'll be honest. I have my eyes set on the MCA. Aren't you one of the few that have the MCA? Yeah, no, I ended up not doing that as yet. And, uh, again, that's uh, it's another one that takes another whole layer of uh, – uh, it, it's a, a board interview type thing, and it's a bit of a challenge actually getting those organised, in particular from the other parts of the world as well. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, there's a, a relatively small number of MCAs, but again, the yeah, the focus is different. It's uh, it's more on project management and so on rather than on sort of technical, uh, where they they keep the sort of masters one as the the technical uh, level there, but the other one is more in the, I suppose, the architect and um, and project management sort of side of things. So I've, I've, I'm thinking about that one these days. I really mm. am, and um, uh, I'm just I'm just wondering if that might be right for me as well uh, as I continue to progress. But yeah, I suspect it's not for everyone that one. I think, uh, yeah. and if you look at the people that are largely in that group, it, it very much tends to actually be mostly uh, internal Microsoft folk, uh, in particular that one. Um, but again, I think that's more about the practicalities of achieving it. Is, is probably the reasons of that. Now, is um, that still a boot camp one too? No, no, no. It's a, it's it's not a sort of a formal training type thing. It's it's much more of a preparation thing. You have to sort of prepare and turn up and deliver case studies and answer questions and things and it's a it's more of um the challenges of getting appropriate panels in place to do the assessment and so on and there's role playing and things like that and oh. so it's more that sort of thing yeah that sounds that sounds like it would take a real long time to pull together yeah the um i actually did get to do a sort of like a beta run of that at an early stage uh but but it was, uh, I'll, I'll be kind to it and say not well organized at the time. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, uh, they, I think they were still very much in the uh, formative stage of getting it in place. And things like, um, you know, the, they were sort of, uh, I had lined up to stay an extra week in the US to do it. Uh, and then they told me they couldn't do it. And then a couple of days before, they then said, oh, hang on, now we can do it again. And uh, then I started to try and prepare the stuff that was prepared, and, and there, there were no resources at all. And at 9 o'clock the night before I was supposed to do it first thing in the morning, they then published all the stuff that told you what you needed and <laughs> and so on and so on. It was a, uh, it, it was a very disorganized thing at the time I was sort of doing that but but look I I have no doubt uh it's it's evolving into a very organized program as as time goes on now oh I'm sure um, listen listen one of the things that I also want to ask you about I, I noted an interesting comment you made where you were talking about data analysis providers and you're saying you you think they're akin to the snake oil salesman of a hundred years ago and I'd love to drill in and know what why you're thinking that so uh, I, I work for a company, and it was financial services. And one thing you learn is that um, past results do not guarantee future returns, right? You, mm -hmm. So in other words, you can't predict the future. And if you made 5% of your money last year, it doesn't mean you're going to make 5% this year. So you start to understand a little bit about what you can and can't do. And it comes in this whole thing of predictive analysis and data analysis. But now, that was that goes back several years. So just in the past few years, the explosion of just big data, just the term, mm -hmm. especially in terms of a pure marketing aspect, what it leads to is uh, it leads to a lot of the accidental architects because people inside the company start asking all these questions and guys like me have to figure out what are, what are we talking about and what do we need. What I'm finding... In fact, well, one, one thing I'd uh, even just before we go any further, just ask you about is the... Uh, a thing I posted about a little while ago myself is, uh, you know, I the, the term big data concerns me. Um, uh, to me, it, it seems like uh, an inappropriate term. In fact, one of the guys answering my blog said he thought awkward data was probably more of more of an appropriate uh, terminology for it. And so I, I think it's worth just sort of 
it's not really about volume, you know, necessarily. I mean, it's techniques that would allow you to, to deal with volume, but techniques that allow you to do new ways of handling things that would be kind of awkward data to deal with. And so when, when you're talking about big data, what, what's your take on the meaning of the words? Because uh, I think they're very hyped words. So I, I like the way I, I remember your blog post, and I like the way they said awkward data, right? And that's mm. a good way of putting it. Uh, and at the MVP summit last week, it was uh, somebody had the, the quote is essentially that big data lets you understand, you know, the questions you didn't know you needed to ask, right? That, mm-hmm. That's another way of putting it. So big data doesn't have to be big as necessarily it has to be awkward. It has to be something unstructured. It just has to be, well, it just has to be. You just have to have yeah. access to it. It's just information. It doesn't matter what format it's in. It's information to help you make a business decision, right, or any decision. Uh, and the word they, and the term they use is insight. And that's kind of the term I'm attacking when I say you have stink oil salesmen because they're promising you these insights, right? They're promising people. So you got the CTO who's reading all these buzzwords about big data and thinking to himself, what do they need? Well, the problem is, is that people are coming forward to make these promises. And they're saying, we're going to give you the insights so you can be ahead of your competition. And I'm here telling you they can't promise that. They are, yeah. but they can't really promise and deliver on that. And a lot of times, all they're doing is giving you like training on how to use Power Pivot. But they're not yeah. spending time with you understanding your business and trying to figure out what questions you, you might have or you might need. They just drop in and they say, here, here's big data. This is what Hadoop means. Here's some data files for mm-hmm. you. Uh, you know, Here's some weather patterns in Chile for you. And, and it's none of that is going to help you get to where you need. So you've really got to be wary of the people who are over-promising a lot of things. Just They're just capitalizing on what is essentially a marketing term at this point. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's what troubles me about it, is that I just see it as a very, very marketing term. It was interesting, um, some of the blog posts from Stephen Few and others uh, that are sort of yeah, questioning a lot of the, the terminology around this. And certainly, probably the, the, the most offensive part of it is just simply the word big, because in many cases, you, you're simply not talking about big. And I think nowadays, if you think about big by computing terms, I mean, most of these things that a lot of people are talking about are simply not big anymore, you know, like, I mean, at, at all. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, I think it's more the how do we deal with something that is kind of awkward to process and, you know, basically how we sort of, you know, techniques for dealing with that, which could scale potentially up to very large numbers. But it sort of fascinates me the number of sites that I see or particularly even consultancies that say they, like, specialise in big data and what fascinates me is, I mean, barely any of the customers really have any big data at all. I mean, so the, the, this is, I, I think, very much a marketing term and, and, and more targeted around techniques. But uh, I think one of the things I should do at one point, I'll get someone on the show soon talking about HD Insight and Hadoop and so on, perhaps Cindy Gross or someone. But, uh, uh, yeah, we'll we'll tuck that a, for uh, bring that up in an upcoming show, I think. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. So uh, what, uh, one other thing is I want to mention, though, is uh, I think another part of the issue is there's a real lack of understanding of basic statistics. Something like mm-hmm. what does it mean to be uh, you know, correlation versus causation, Right. Yeah. So the, these these snake oil salesmen, I, I think, show up and they try to bring you to a conclusion, but the reality is is that they, they aren't they aren't really following. They don't have the basic statistics skills to mm. really make heads or tails of the information, right? And so because of that, I think we're also seeing just a lot of people being victims, and they're throwing 
different. Good money after bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, it is one thing that I, I suppose it maybe it's a left brain, right brain thing too, but I, I find it's an amazing number of people in the community struggle with just basic logic. So it's, it's interesting when you're sort of talking about causality and so on. The, um, the, the idea that you look at something, uh, and you see something doesn't necessarily define how it came to be that way, you know, and, and so on. And, uh, yeah, I, I think just understanding of causality and stuff is, is an interesting question itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's all a part of it and why I would just tell people, if you are thinking that you need big data, you need some analytics, and you need to bring some people in-house, you know, you could just do a few basic checks. You know, if, if they're not there to talk about your business and what your needs are, if they aren't spending 25 30% of their time up front just understanding you, then they're probably not the right solution provider for you, right? I mean, mm. you've got to, they've got to come in and understand your stuff. And the other thing is, like the basic stats, correlation, causation, understanding, mm. and the logic, these are basic skills. But believe it or not, not a lot of people have them, right? They were talking about people who yeah. have been heads down coding or something. To them, logic is just if-then-else statements, right? But there's more to it than that. And sometimes mm. I think that gets gets lost. Oh, look, even a basic understanding of logic, it, it does amaze me around uh, around the community. I mean, uh, the classic example that comes to mind uh, was the Da Vinci Code, the book. Uh, I have so many friends read that and they went, wow, you know, look at that and so on. And I, when I read that book, I mean, I, I did pick it up and read it from beginning to end. It was, it was great to read it uh, through. But the thing that offended me all the way through it was the logic. Um, what they would, what he would do all the way through the book is he'd say, you know, here's a preposterous uh, suggestion A, and then he would say, well, you know, if A was true, then B would be true, where B is something he already knows is true, and then he go, oh, but B is true, and so he go, like, you know, then A must have been true, and you're like, no, no. <laughs> like, it just doesn't work like that, and and the entire book was just one series after the other of that sort of logic and or non-logic and. Uh, Wow, that just grated on the mathematical side of me the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I know I haven't read the book or seen the movie, but um, I could certainly see where that would be one of those things where you say, no, I, I think you're drawing a false conclusion there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's just no possibility you could draw the conclusion that he was actually drawing. So, yeah, that's no, interesting. Listen, another topic that you uh, comment on is you see Microsoft as the new electric company. Uh, perhaps, you said, no, I remember you noted complete with billing problems. But uh, So how do you see this evolving? Uh, so, yeah, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, they, they are really switching into full service provider mode these days, right? Yeah. Everything you see coming from them is subscription-based, service-based, mm -hmm. just like the electric company just like the water works, right? So uh, my electric company, it, it's just a service. They give me my lights. I pay them a bill. It's a nice little relationship we have, right? I pay my yeah. bill on time. My lights stay on. Um, same thing with Microsoft and Azure. I mean, this is what they want. Mm -hmm. They want people to be giving them money every month on a reliable basis, okay? They want to be a utility. Uh, they want to provide service. They want to provide platforms, infrastructure, do whatever it takes, to make our lives easier, and in exchange for that, they get a steady revenue stream, right? That's, yeah. that's a utility. Um, mm. And, yeah, complete with billing problems, right? Because you've seen, you've seen the discussions where people say, hey, such and such just got shut off, and I had no idea I was near my limit, or why can't I change easily from this credit card to this other credit card? I, I don't understand why, yeah. you know, how did I earn, how did I charge a thousand dollars last month? Uh, can somebody explain my bill to me? And I laugh mm. and I say, so they're building a new utility company and complete with building problems, not just them, but Amazon, they all have it because it's all new yeah. for them. It, it's, and it's growing fast. They're getting better at it, but it, it it's kind of funny to see, how they're really trying to, um, well, you know, if you had a company and you were making software, right, and that's a product in a box, mm. and the future of the world is getting away from this box product, I mean, what would you do? You could either yeah. you could either stand your ground and say boxes for everybody, 
or you get on board with distributed computing and everything else. And that's what they've done. It's not a bad thing. It's it's where the tech is headed right now. Oh, look, it absolutely is. In fact, I was uh, teaching a class this week, actually, a BI core skills class, and actually it was great to see the numbers were actually sort of full again this week. It was really interesting. So the interest is there at the moment. Um, but the the thing that sort of... I look at a lot of these things and and I just see uh, there's just a total movement in that direction. And I I look at people, uh, if I look at data quality as a good example, uh, I've got customers around the country who their IP is around uh, cleansing of data in various ways, but they still very much think of themselves as somebody sends them a batch of data you know, they do cleansing of it, uh, be it addresses, be it post, you know, a phone, whatever the thing is, and they then batch this stuff up and then send back chunks of data. And uh, I, I keep talking to a lot of these guys and saying, look, somehow you have to set yourself up as a service. Um, and then the interesting thing is they'll end up with a much wider variety of customers coming to them as well, um, if if there are small incremental services available. But it's a complete shift from them, uh, even for people who are used to doing sort of chunks of data as a service. A lot of them are very used to the idea of doing this in big batch sort of ch- uh, sort of chunks, and they, they all have to move to some sort of service-based model. Okay. Uh, and you're saying this is mostly for data quality, huh? Mm, in this yeah. case, yeah. So, so like uh, people who do really good work on uh, address cleansing, for example. Okay. Uh, again, I think they need to wrap that up and have it as available as an online service rather than focusing on, you know, customers are going to bundle up a whole lot of address data that they've received, send it to them, get it cleansed and get it sent back right. uh, over a period. You know, it's just not where it's heading. And if I look at uh, even in the Azure data market, I mean, uh, things like Melissa and so on are starting to head down that path. Um, but the other thing is that they add a richness to it that you wouldn't otherwise have. So, for example, I send you, a, I send to a service, you know, an address and go, hey, this doesn't sort of, you know, please cleanse this. But as well as sending it back, it sends back things like, oh, oh by the way, we've geolocated it for you. And, you know, all these sorts of things come back as additional value add on that data uh, when you send it, uh, it off and call these services. Um, similarly, I've seen U.S. phone number ones where I send a phone number in but it sends me back details and says, hey, yeah, that looks like a valid phone number. You know, the area code is actually valid. And like, you know, last time we had an idea of a location, it was kind of here. And that was a voice over IP phone, you know, and so on and so on and so on. That sort of info comes back, not just the cleaned up phone number, but the idea that all these things are available as online services that you call on demand, I, I think is more where that's all heading. I think so, too. And, you know, it's actually it's not new. Right? They started no. uh, with uh, SOAP and things like that getting baked into SQL Server, mm. I think, with 2005. I mean, the idea yep. of – I remember once we talked about um, we wanted to publish some store procedures as a service or something. I forget what mm. we were building, but the idea was to architect something that might be a little more stable than whatever we had been using. But we were looking at publishing our own service-based uh, things, you know. So if somebody in the company needed to know the um, end of month date, right? We could create a function, mm-hmm. we could publish it as a service, and then people could pull it down. And then you would have, you know, the company using one one function instead of everybody writing their own end of month function yeah. as an example. Um, mm-hmm. So it's been there all along, but for whatever reason, this this kills me, Greg. It, it's mm. been there all along. But all of a sudden, in the last two years, it's not a new concept, but people fear it. They're like, no, I'm Mm. not sending my information to the cloud. And I laugh. I go, you've been doing it for a decade. What's different now? Privacy, this, that, and the other. I go, no, those concerns were all there to begin with. You know, it's like they just fear change. They're just afraid. And Mm. I I, I don't get it. It it is interesting because, again, a lot of organizations are going to this. They say, yeah, we're really worried about – 
you know, uh, the security of our data and so on. And, and then I say, well, you know, where's your payroll data? And they go, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, we do use this service that, you know, and, and then, you know, where is this? And they go, oh, yeah, actually, that's up at, you know, and like, they've already got data all over the place, most of these organizations. But the thing that strikes me when I look at, uh, I mean, the Azure guys, they, and, and, uh, Amazon and others too, but the thing is, they do have problems, no no question. I mean, like things will happen occasionally. But on their worst day, they, they do a better job than almost any company I ever walk into. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's, I, and you know what? Even though I know that there have been times when the cloud has gone offline, but uh, mm. yeah, I, honestly, I would have to agree with that. I mean, they, they do a really good job of it, and they're getting better at it. And pretty soon, my kids, my kids aren't going to think twice about it. They're just not. Yeah. They're not. It's, it's, I think some of it is, uh, there's also a bit of a protection thing. Like I've done some work lately with uh, some aged health providers in, in the country here. And I think what happens there a bit, though, is that they're all concerned that if something does go wrong at some point, then even though it was probably a sane or rational decision, they don't want to be the one that somebody points at and goes, you did something different and that was the thing that led to the issue. Mm. You know, So then they're going to get nailed. And so what, what a lot of them are looking for is just a whole body around them to all start doing the same thing, right? Um, because then it becomes the norm. But but when they feel like they're the odd one out doing it, that that's a real problem. Um, it was interesting, I noticed like a few weeks back, Sweden coming out and saying, you look, we're just like totally happy with our uh, you know, citizens' data and stuff like that living in Azure. They, they just came out and did that at a government level. And that's interesting. That's actually very interesting because uh, I know just how regionalized Europe is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm guessing that they say they're perfectly comfortable with it because the, their data center sits inside their borders. Hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that's the case because that's usually no it, well, it wasn't actually the case in, oh, okay. in, in that situation yeah so because so. some countries they're very particular I believe Germany hmm. France very particular about the data has to sit inside their borders yeah so uh, but yeah if a, if a, an entire nation has said we're comfortable with it being and that that is a huge first step uh, yeah. but even even if they weren't even if you're Germany France or whoever and you say you know, it has to sit in our borders, then the simple answer is, fine, we'll give you a data center, it sits right there, it's yours, right? Yeah. It, yeah, I think it, it's it's interesting, the analogy you're talking about, the electric company. I mean, I think people don't realize as well, the there's a reason they build data centers, of course, in certain locations. And uh, the uh, I know the guys were telling me that two-thirds of the cost of running the data center uh, is cooling. I mean, it, it's oh. basically power. That That's it. And so... Uh, if, if you and so it's interesting with the analogy with the electric uh, utility companies and so on because in fact there's discussion that down the track you'll probably be charged by the kilowatt hour for computing instead of for disks and CPU and things like that because actually nothing else matters in the data center except cooling. Uh, it, it, it's all about power. Wow. I mean, uh, that's, that's the only thing that comes into it, and uh, that's why they're saying it's sort of interesting. They uh, uh, started building data centers in the sun-built areas of California, for example, and then realized that was not the cleverest thing they're, they're ever going to do. And they then started building them down around the bottom of the lakes area there in Chicago, or at least it was cold and so on. But I noticed now the, the huge race that's on in places like Iceland and so on where uh, it's just interesting. I mean, they, they basically have virtually unlimited geothermal power. Now, one of the you've got to wonder, well, as soon as you have virtually unlimited geothermal power, it's do I want my data sitting on a volcano is, <laughs> is, is the, the next question. Uh, but basically, they don't need raw resources. They just need money. Um, and, of course, they've got the best Internet connectivity in the entire world uh, in those areas because the U.S.-European interconnect runs through Iceland and Greenland. And, and so they're actually latency-wise positioned right between the U.S. and Europe and they have more bandwidth than anybody else. So, like, it, and they have amazing power resources, and it's cold and remote. So, uh, th- this is a good thing for Iceland. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like it's a good thing for all of us, though. I mean, yeah. It, it, but it's very interesting that I'm going to pay Microsoft, and he might charge me by the kilowatt hour, and I'm also going to pay 
they're going to have to reduce my billing. It's like paying uh, three. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be paying bills for power to all sorts of different companies. But that yeah. I hadn't really thought about. And, and I mean, I've worked with data centers before. You know how much mm. it costs down to the square foot, and it really yeah. it's always come down to the cooling. You wanted to yeah, reduce. That's you, it. You virtualize servers. You physically consolidated because why? Because you need less cooling. Oh, yeah, and it it even goes further than that. I mean, if you look at the operating systems, the it, it seemed remarkable when they first came out with options to, for example, move around workloads while they were in use. Mm. So I could move a, uh, a, an operation or a service or a, uh, or an application things from one server to another, even while people are connected to it. And of course, the reason they do that in the data centers is they need to keep moving your application to the coolest part of the data center. Oh, wow. Um, to be able to minimize the overall temper- temperature of the overall data center. So, I mean, th- these guys are working in a world that most of us are just not familiar with at all. No, not at all. I had no idea that that, that was a factor, a uh, consideration. It, this, yeah. this server's the coolest. It can handle, yes. that's, that's the one we identify as move the workload there. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, how many people do that in our own data centers? No. It's not, not something you even think about. Right? No, so. they never think. They, well, they think of capacity. They think, well, it has the mm. CPU or the memory, so we can just put it there. But if it's, then nobody's thinking it's the warmest. Yeah. No, it, it's it's quite intriguing. But I find it's the same with like internet service providers, and I think this is one of the other big concerns that people have is they say, look, you know, with my data, at worst, I can always get to it. But uh, there is this sort of resistance that says, yeah, I know what it's like, uh, for example, in the U.S. dealing with my cable company, you know, or uh, or my internet service provider or so on. Do I really want to have that relationship with the person who has my data? Yeah, and and this this is I think one of the really big insightful things. Like when you're talking about uh, complete with billing problems for Microsoft and others, is people are really going to want to have a, a a better relationship than they do with the existing electric companies and people like that when it's their data that they're concerned about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either. It's but you are definitely going to want to have a good relationship with the people that are that you've entrusted your data with, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think there are real challenges there for that. And and so it's not that, I mean, they'll still provide amazing service and so on, but that does mean that there's a role there, I think, for someone who knows how to deal with them well and who knows how to deal with the client well, you know, Um uh, I, I think that sort of middle person there, there is a significant role uh, in around that sort of area as well. So the uh, the all those Windows Azure MVPs, those are yes, <laughs> those are the key people for the, our future. But look, looking forward, um, so I, I noticed that you tend to feel that the coming changes, of course, mean more opportunities, not less, and. Just love to hear your thoughts around that. Well, yeah, I, and I had mentioned that earlier. That people seem to fear change, right? They just they mm. say, "Hey, don't can't touch my data, can't go to the cloud. I don't want to hear about Azure because it's just unrealistic, right?" And well, I'm seeing a shift finally. Uh, you know, it took me a while. I I was always open to the idea, but I never really saw application or practical use. Mm. The last couple of years, I've really seen all the great efforts that, that have come, well, three years really now since I've been playing with Azure. And, and I just see how it's all developed, and I'm really excited for it. Um, yeah. It, it, it's just that it, I've always kind of seen it as an opportunity. It's it's something it's learning something new, which we talked earlier about, always nice to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not going to cost me a job, Right. So I, I guess there's this idea that being an on-premise DBA means everything's there locally and that's it, and, and that's your little kingdom. And you feel you, you fear having Azure being the new platform, and you don't want stuff to go to the cloud. You don't want to hear about it. But the thing is, is that there's this whole transition phase where you have to know both. Right? You yeah. need to know on-prem and you need to know Azure, and, and that's where we're transitioning into. And I think three to five years down the road. The idea of being an on-prem DBA, the idea of me having a data center in my own company, the idea of me having mm-hmm. to walk into this room where the server is and be at a terminal there, that's going to be gone. That's going to be gone faster than people realize. And Yeah, it's in- interesting you say three to five years. I-, I remember about two years ago one of our 
colleagues, Paul Nelson, I remember Paul saying uh, he just wondered how far away it was before having your data on-premises seemed quaint. Yes, it's not that far. Mm. It's not that far because what they released recently was um, was uh, you can get um, hosted Azure, right? So you get your own VM in Azure. So if you want a full yes. instance of SQL Server, you just you have your own instances in Azure now, same as uh, Amazon, right, or Rackspace. Yep. And and that's just it. It's uh, I know companies. I've worked with companies. Everything's hosted. I worked for a company when they my day one. They said, "Here's your laptop. Here's the URL to get your email. Here's where you yep. do this." It, I mean, there's no data center, I work remote, right? Uh, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it, it's it's a brave new world. And right now, people need to know a little bit of both. That's a wonderful mm. opportunity. You get to, right now, have a job, and you get to learn all these new things. And then you get to transition to being the DBA in the cloud later on because there's a role for you there. I mean, people yes. don't get that, but believe it or not, a DBA and only administering Windows Azure SQL databases, that job, that that's going to exist. You're going to need yes. somebody in that role. Yeah, I think what uh, what people find a little challenging, of course, is it's going to be a different role to to the one that's currently there. So the concerns that you're going to have on a daily basis will not necessarily be the same concerns you have today, but uh, the, you'll still nonetheless have things that are involved. I, th I think it'll be important for people to get a little more concerned about the logical design of what they're doing rather than the physical design, right. uh, no, no question. So um, people need to be honing skills more in the upper levels. And it's it's interesting to fold back to the discussion on the MCM. And one of the things about the master certification that concerned me actually with the the move to the more recent structure is that the they tended to remove a whole lot of more of the development and logical sort of side of stuff and focus uh, when they had to sort of narrow it down a bit to the sort of more low level stuff and the concern I've got with that is to me that's the stuff that actually has the shortest shelf life hmm well, I've never had anybody call my MCM a low-level MCM, but yes, <laughs> uh, um, I, I think I understand what you're saying, but I, I don't have the background on what the program used to be like. But uh, yeah, I think what what I was getting at is that if you look at um, SQL Server, I mean, you tend to have the sort of even without having the BI side, you tend to have the sort of database development skills and the very low-level file system I/O type those sort of skills yep and it's interesting to me that the shift in the program is actually towards that lower end of things right uh and in, in the you know the the very fine io physical you know those sort of things well, well the, the yeah. perfect example would just be recovery because when you're yeah. on uh, azure sql database you don't worry about that and and this is the thing i'm getting at is that for skills that have a shelf life into the future uh, I'd, I'd actually like to see the whole thing tending more towards uh, further up the stack yep. rather rather than further down the stack. Yeah, uh, I, I could see that. Yeah, and simply because I just think those skills are the ones that are going to hang around a lot longer. Um, have you been implementing much in the way of databases there? Because one one of the things I find all the time that does concern me, I see Microsoft marketing that that basically says you just take your applications, point your connection string to the cloud, and all will be good, and and that's just not how I see it at all. <laughs> so three years ago, I, I actually found an old presentation of mine. I actually had a presentation for back when it was still SQL Azure, right? And yeah. it was about migrating and getting data to the cloud and using the data sync and all the tools at the time, and they were woefully inadequate. They were there, but boy, you had to really put a lot of stuff together. And I just told people, yeah. you know, it'll get better. I don't know when, but I'm sure it will. Mm -hmm. So three years later, uh, well, just last year, I was doing the tech review for a pro SQL Azure book and uh, mm -hmm. written by Scott Klein from Microsoft. And uh, boy, somebody else, I can't remember his name. Uh, but they, uh, you'll have to include it now that I can't remember it. Yeah, I'll put a note to that. So yep. put, put a note for it. And you know what? I actually, where's the book? I should have it right in front of me here. But what what it was was that it gave me an opportunity to revisit a lot of things. So mm -hmm. back to the portals, back to this, back to the deployment. And i got to be honest, it, is it ever always going to be point and click and you're done? No. But you know what is point and click? Starting stuff that's new. 
So if I have yeah. an idea for an app, right, in, in their store, I can get set up and running inside of an hour and have something deployed and available for people to download. I mean, yeah. it, it was that quick for me. And, and yeah. as a DBA, I could say, well, what did it do behind the scenes? I could look at the structure of the data and say, well, that might not be optimal for some of these queries. I'll have to go back in and fix it later. But I have an awareness of that. Um, mm. Migrating my data to the cloud, if you know what to do to treat it beforehand, yeah, it wasn't that difficult to actually bring the data mm. up there. It, but you have to you have to have an awareness. You have to have those skills. I've been touching it for three years now. There are certain things I just know I have to have. If I want to get my data there and be able to use it, I'm going to need that clustered index, right? Mm. And so I have a yeah, script. Look. You know, if my database doesn't have a clustered index on this table, it's something I got to fix before I think about migrating. Mm. That's right. It's going to enforce certain designs on you to to a degree. But I think the other concern I've got is that there's going to be this period where you have this sort of hybrid thing as well, where people will have some stuff on premises, some stuff in the cloud as well. And and the how you deal with that is interesting. So, for example, um, uh, one of the sessions I've been putting together for I tend to try and do a new session or two each year, and it's just things around lessons I've been learning while implementing some of these uh, systems, where particularly where you've got sort of hybrid things in place. Now, for example, I could go off and create a linked server in an on-premises database and point that at, at an Azure database, and I mean that that works okay. But it's interesting things like when I start using, say, for example, the merge statement. Now, I could use that in my code, but what I've found performance-wise and so on, that's actually not been a very good story because of latency. Now, if I want to do insert if the data isn't there or update if it, if it is, merge has actually been a pretty good story. But what I've found uh, that I've done in Azure that I would never have thought of, I would never do in an on-premises one, is I've ended up building an insert or update instead of trigger in the Azure database, and then I just do inserts. Huh, okay. And so what's interesting is the inserts just stream up in a in a big lump, and and then I'll do, deal with it at a trigger at the other end. And, and what amazes me is the, I'm getting way different performance characteristics by doing this sort of thing. And so there's so many of these things. Like another one is that, I was looking at data where if you'd say, how do I move a whole lot of data from here up to a cloud one? Uh, if you look at all the things I see online, people talk about, uh, you know, how you might tune integration services and so on to sort of point it and migrate the data. I had a, a, a thing the other day that I worked out was going to take about 14 hours to uh, push up, mostly because of latency concerns, even with all the best things I could do in around integration services. However, in uh, Cumulative Update 2 of Service Pack 1 for SQL Server 2012, they added the ability to back up and restore to and from a URL. Now, this is fascinating because what I was able to do is build code that wrote data into a new database that I wanted to move. I then did a backup of the database with compression to a URL in in Azure storage, and then I just restored the database in an Azure VM. Whole thing is about thirty minutes now. <laughs> wow! And 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 these sort of things are starting to just do my head in. You know, the idea that there are, you know, it's it's not that it, it's even the same skills you're reusing in different ways, but just the assumption that the way you have done things in the past. It, it isn't just a case of pointing the connection string somewhere else and hoping for the best. There really are significant things that a data person can be doing in the in this upcoming world. Yeah, the example I was given recently was um, we've got some really sloppy coding out there. Uh, I sometimes rail against, say, Scrum and Agile because I just think it's an excuse for people to be sloppy. But one of the things that we've come to rely on is connectivity. So mm -hmm. there's an assumption that you're going to build this app and you're going to connect to it and it's always going to be there, right? But with Azure, you realize that you have to have retry logic. Now, that yes. retry logic, that was a fairly standard coding thing 20, 30 years ago. You did that, mm -hmm. right? Everything, hey, I'm going to try to connect, and if I can't, I'll just retry, and I'll just keep retrying until it's there or something, right? Yeah. And we, our, our development guys, they lost this at some point. This is like, mm -hmm. like, why would I have to retry? 
I'm there. Well, with Azure, you do. So we're back to maybe getting better coding standards out of this. You're talking about you know, some old skills that have come back to you and thinking of things differently. It's not really new. It's just you're thinking of it in a different order. And I think on top mm. of that is also I think we're going to get some better coding practices out of this as well. Yeah, it, it, look, as I said, I, I find it fascinating. And the thing that's intrigued me is there's just more and more projects I'm involved with almost every day at the moment that, that are starting to have some sort of Azure-related uh, aspect to them. And uh, and particularly even VMs, if people want to get their head around that, um, it's a good example that there's a VM template up there uh, that has a full SQL Server eval edition in, already pre-installed on it. So yep. if I go to Azure and I need to spin up a VM to uh, do some learning or things like that. Now, it is so easy, instead of trying to provision gear, to just go up, say, spin me up a VM based on that template, and literally 10 minutes later, you've got a VM sitting there running on whatever level hardware you pick on uh, in terms of resources uh, with SQL Server and everything already pre-installed. And, and that's just incredible. Yeah, I uh, I haven't had a chance to do that yet, but I heard about mm-hmm. it, and I I know from you and others I see in the distribution list that are doing it. And, but yeah, it it really is amazing to me just how far they've come. Yeah. Now look at it. Something else. Listen, one of the things I um, like to ask everybody too, Tom, is just is there life outside SQL Server? Ah, <laughs> uh, for me personally. Yeah. Yeah, there is. <laughs> uh, there is. Uh, so. Um, there's lots of so little things. So what sort of things keep you occupied outside that? Well... Or are there anything that's passionate uh, outside the databases? You know, I'm, I'm actually... I think data and databases is my passion at this point. But, I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've got my, my children who are wonderful. Um, yep. We try to uh, take vacations together as a family. Uh, we, You know, so all this standard stuff. I do... Uh, you know, I used to do a lot of basketball coaching uh, back when I was a little bit younger and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. That stuff has kind of fallen off. So these yep. days I kind of enjoy uh, I enjoy some travel. Uh, I enjoy being with mm-hmm. my family more than anything else. But data databases are, are really more of a passion. Uh, yeah. There's always reading some good books. And um, I enjoy a lot of uh, puzzles, puzzles and games. Mm-hmm. So uh, right. Scrabble is my favorite right now. Words with friends, yep. things like that. Um mm. Yeah, oh, that's good. And and bacon. You know, uh, bacon and cooking. I, I've always been into food and cooking, but uh, bacon, I yeah, I just can't get enough. For, of for, bacon. for those that don't know, uh, uh, there's a uh, seems to be a running thread in uh, Thomas's posts uh, <laughs> related to bacon. There, there seems to be a special passion for bacon. There, you know, you just can't go wrong with bacon. You just can't. <laughs> Every, you know, even people who can't eat it still, that's the gateway meat. They would love to have some. That's that's the one thing. It's just, yeah. I wouldn't say necessarily. It's more fun at this point because people just send yeah. me stuff. They're like, hey, I saw To do this. with bacon. Yeah. yeah, I saw this bacon thing. I thought you'd like it, so here you go. And you just laugh. I get articles sent to me, links sent to me. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun these days. Um, but, yeah. yeah. I've always enjoyed food and cooking as well. So. Mm-hmm. And so, look, where... Going forward, then, where will people come across your CU in the upcoming months? Oh, great question. The big one is TechEd. So yep. uh, I am doing a pre-con with uh, Grant Fritchie and Danny Wine. We're doing mm-hmm. – it's a basically – I don't know the exact title. I guess I should. But it is a – pre-con is based about uh, being a DBA and transitioning from being on-premise to the cloud. Right. Yep. So the skills and abilities you have right now, how you're doing things today, how you'll need to do things in the future, and that hybrid approach that you've talked about. You know, maybe that solution mm. for the upsert is a little bit differently than what you've been thinking. So yeah. uh, that's we'll be doing that. Uh, what New Orleans? I think first week in June. Mm-hmm. Then two weeks later, we're all heading to Madrid. So if you're listening to this and you're going to be in Spain and Madrid in the third week of June, there you can come check us out. So that's going to be the yeah. big one is TechEd. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll be at the past summit. I'll be at the Business Analytics Conference in Chicago. Actually, I was going to ask you that. Yep. Yeah, so that's coming up as well. So what's the thinking or feeling with that as a separate summit within PASS? So it, I, I'm not sure I would call it a summit quite yet, but yep. you know, it's, right now we just call it a conference. So the thought yep. is, is that we have a lot of members who are those accidental architects, 
and they mm-hmm. need to have more information about that particular those well the eighty percent of the plat the data platform tools that we never really talk about. Uh, so there's but there's also a new market out there of people who are basically uh, just like us. They might be working by themselves and they have like a DBA. Often is they find themselves by themselves, so they reach out and they get connected with others in the community. Uh, there are people using tools these days like Excel and they're by themselves and they have questions. And we thought it'd be great to offer them a chance to get together to connect, share, and learn with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, uh, eight, this April is the first one in Chicago. Uh, we're going to do another one next year. Uh, it's, it's, we are committed to providing this for our members. We feel that with 125,000 members of PASS, we're pretty certain that we're filling a need for some of them. Yeah. And the um, main past summit, I suppose, is the, maybe the word I could use to yeah. describe it. So um, moving this year. It is. We will be in Charlotte. So God, how many years have we been in Seattle now? Five, I think? Mm, Five or six. Yeah. Uh, we are, we, we're coming east. We're taking the show on the road this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to Charlotte. We will be there in October. And that is uh, that is the uh, the flagship event. Um, that's yep. the one you've known and loved for 14 years now. Mm. It is uh, it's going to be different to not be in Seattle. It will be yeah. very different for us. Uh, all indications right now show us that you know we're we're headed for another great event there. Mm. Excellent. Well, listen, so thank you so very much for your time today, Tom, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, offering to have me on the show, Greg. It was wonderful.